there's a guy that uh, does a political podcast, but he does a he does a uh, an impersonation of Martin Luther King. But he. What is the race of this person? Yes, this is really important. Well, you have to understand that this. Person okay, is, so he's white. He's, he's <laughs> Well, friends, we're here again uh, in the Highlands Bunker. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're in the belly of the beast. We're keeping an eye on everybody. Uh, We were doing some math here uh, earlier, and uh, we think that based on our number of patrons and the downloads we get and the people we know who give us feedback on the show and sort of listen to it, we have about one quarter of, like, fans and 75% of just people who just hate listen. And I'm really, I'm so happy about it. I like that ratio, actually. It's a good ratio for me. So um, if you're in the 75% and you know who you are, just know that we know. And I love it. I really do. I really love it. Well, we have a fun one for you tonight. Um, I, I wanted to do this because um, she, she burst on the scene uh Late last year, around a year, I guess it's been. Um, who knows where she's headed? Who knows? She could become the president of France, for all we know. Probably not. Um, but uh, she she uh, is the super producer emeritus and uh, and one of our co-founders uh, with with Carl and me, uh, and she's become quite uh, quite a prolific activist. Uh, here in in Wilmington, and uh, I'm happy to be able to do like a full boat, uh, full piece with uh, with Margaret. Who? Thank you for the red carpet rollout. Well, wow, I mean, this sounds so much cooler than I'll end up being on this. But... No, everybody says that. It's not true. <laughs> it's not true. But I, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's weird sitting in the orange seat um, and not behind the screen. But I'm excited for this little little family reunion. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> It's fun. Well, we, before we get to the stuff that you're doing now and how you've came, to, you were talking about uh, you were talking about growing up. So, where did you grow up? You, where did you go to school? You, you switch time. How, mm-hmm. where, 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 where would you say somebody just said, "Hey, where'd you grow up?" What would you say? Yeah, you want my CV? Totally. Well, from, um, from from the ages of three from to age ten. Of zero to yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I I often because I I feel like you know especially moving here recently, I do the whole little like, where are you from? I'm like, that's a really long story. Um, So I was born in Bowling Green, Ohio. My parents uh, immigrated from China and were living there because my dad was completing his PhD, which is actually how um, he got granted to come to the United States. And then from there, I moved to Pittsburgh around the age of five. It's where I would still consider my hometown. Um, And then when I turned 10, my family moved back to China. Uh, we moved to Tianjin, which is right outside of Beijing, the capital. Lived there until about eighth grade. Then moved back to the States. Moved back to Pittsburgh, um, but different neighborhood. And then after living there for another two years, moved to the suburbs of Chicago. Graduated high school there. Went to college in Providence, Rhode Island at Brown. Uh, and then afterwards, moved here to the second smallest state. So now you've been in a, you've been a resident of the, the, the two smallest. Yeah, exactly. And... I, out of curiosity, look up where the third smallest state is, which is Connecticut, and there's no fucking way of moving there. I fucking hate Connecticut. Connecticut's. I'm so good. sorry for anyone from, who's from there, but like, I just have horrid memories of trying to get from Providence to New York City, and Connecticut is just the fucking worst. I'm so sorry. I'm gonna have to agree with you. Yeah. Don't sucks. don't apologize. They deserve it. Yeah, that's true. Well, I I feel like I'd apologize because I recently listened to Alexandra Rojas's um, podcast on here. Oh, nice! I know she grew up in Connecticut, and yeah, so I'm yeah. like, you're one of the good things to come from Connecticut. But there's just so little. Else. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a thing inherent in her story too. Like, I mean, it's it's such a it, it's uh, it's such an incredible story of her move from Connecticut to California because she decided, sort of of her own volition. To, to study how you could get a residency in California and then start going through the state school so system. In-state, yeah. So to do that as a, to, you know, to, to, to basically research that while you're in high school, move to California, work 
you know, find, you know, sort of low wage jobs for a year to establish residency and get enough money to start, you really got to fucking hate Connecticut. I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but <laughs> I'm just saying that you, that, that story could be, um, could be taken in that way. Yeah, maybe. Um, but we also just saw this week that she was named, uh, the times, uh, 100 yes. youngest influential political people in the country. Yeah, it's the next 100. Is that what the list is called? The time think? next 100, I yeah. think, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, oh, wow, fancy. Well-deserved, I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it was it was cool to be able to talk to her, and I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. our paths will meet again, but mm-hmm. it was uh, it was an exciting it was an exciting time while she was here. It was really something else. So you moved back to Pittsburgh from China when you were eighth grade? Uh, yeah, so, so I probably just turned 13. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you moved back there, did you feel like did you still have a connection to the United States, or did you feel like oh, I'm Chinese, like I'm just Chinese? Was it a culture shock again? Um, I, I think the way I often kind of like recall it is, I, I, I will say, I think like being first gen is is feeling like you never quite belong. I think in like either probably the country your parents and family are from or the country you're growing up in. Um, the schools I went to were like mostly white and so i think that kind of dictated my experience my experience there um i i do remember i think because like you know when you're a teenager you're just kind of like you want to like find your thing you're trying to like figure out how to make yourself like comfortable and cool and i like have a very distinct memory of like um going to international school in china and everyone's like oh so like are you chinese and and i was like no i'm american like i am american i keep up with the Steelers. like just like adopting like these corny ass like american characteristics um I can see you as a as a big football fan, definitely. I tried, and it was mainly because my dad was a football fan. Like my dad kind of did a similar thing. When How he did he? Oh, so he 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 kind of like just started oh, like my dad getting just, into whatever everybody else. Yeah, was he. Into. I remember growing up, and he was like, "Yeah, I like football, and I, I like grilling." Like my dad was like, "This one means to be American. Like, let's do it." Um, <laughs> he's like, "I'm gonna that? build a deck." Like, yeah, I guess you do see that with a lot of people <laughs> like that. Like they're like, "Okay, I'm here. I'm gonna yeah I'm gonna do the thing." Well, I mean, I I think, um, and I, I see it in talking to my like relatives a lot of time. Like, going, immigrating in America is still very much the dream in China. Like that was something my parents like heard about all the time growing up, and they grew up in like very much like the farming countryside in China, and like the like epitome of success is being able to like get to America someday. And my both my mom and my dad are the only ones from their respective families who um, made it to the U.S. So, like, I think meeting all my cousins and stuff, it's very evident, you know, I have a bit of a different experience. And there's, like, a language barrier there for a while and stuff. Um, so to circle back to your question, um, I think culture shock mainly in terms of, like, being a middle schooler and being 13. And, like, middle school is just hell anywhere you are, no matter what country you're in. Um, and I think... I, it, I I generally felt like at the time it was more like I, I felt like I was coming home just because the whole time I was in China, I, I like just desperately missed like the States and wanted to come back and like. Um, and you went to English language school in China. Yeah, I went okay. to an international school. Um, my parents uh, like offered every now and then to, for me to go to a public school in China, but they were like, we don't know if your Chinese is good enough. We want And like the whole reason why my parents immigrated was that they wanted me and my sister to be able to go to college in America. And so they knew we were going to go back sometime because they were like, this is how you're going to be successful. Like, we're working towards that. If you stay in a, a international school, you'll, you'll probably get a better education, like, better credits, et cetera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, I, I feel like, you know, all, I uh, just was working in a in a bank department um, that was, it was maybe 50 people, 60 people, and 55 of them were uh, uh, either born in China or first generation. Mm-hmm. Or, but I, I think... I would say a lot of them were, were born in China. Even the students came sense. over and, and came. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they were all, you know, PhD mathematicians and computer scientists and stuff. Mm. And I can understand why, you know, the, you're just your, you know, your security and comfort in life would be better. But I can't, I, I, you know, I don't know whether it's it's because it's, um, it's a trope uh, about the education thing or the pressure of education mm-hmm. because that was like you can do this if you if you're driven and you you know you're able to go to university in the United States and you can do this. but like did you feel any of that pressure was that like did you ever think like I don't know whether I'd want to do that or did you like yeah that makes perfect sense to me I'll just do whatever I need to do I don't think I'd really question it while I was growing up I think it was it was made oh my gosh I literally remember um actually when I was 10 
And when my parents broke me, we were like, oh, we're moving to China. I was like, what the hell? Like, not that exactly because I was 10, but I was like, there's no way. Like, why do we have to move? Like, I'm 10. Like, I'm chilling. Like, why do I have to uproot my whole life? And my mom was like, so your dad can get a better job and you pay for your college. And I was like, why do I have to go to college? Like, I'm going to go to college and then I'm going to have to get a job. And then I'm going to get married and then I'll die. That sucks. Why do I have to do this? So I had this, like, full-blown existential crisis as a 10-year-old. Um, but, like, definitely didn't question it, I think all throughout growing up because like one my parents were like this is what you have to do and i think two subconsciously like i knew that's why they immigrated here like it was that kind of um weight of like you know this is everything it sacrificed it left their like homeland like they my dad had worked like so hard and sacrificed so much his entire life in order to for me to have this privilege i think definitely weighed in the back of my mind a lot and so i i think college was just kind of like I, don't know, I didn't. I didn't have like the heart in me to rebel enough to be like, I don't have to do this. I was kind of like, okay, like, mom, can I like not go to an Ivy League? Like, that like that was my version of rebelling in my worldview at the time. And and, and that didn't um, work out either. So we were yeah, it didn't. Out. I was gonna say. What was that? I, I mean, again, I just think like that. That being the conversation would be like, uh, I don't know, not not a burden, but it would stress me. And again, my recollection of my teenage years is is waning. You know, it's hard. You know, I gotta be honest. It's been know. that long. <laughs> I mean, we were just talking to. Um, oh, we were talking to Harvey J.K., the prof- the history the history professor. Mm. Uh, just we just released it last week, and he was talking about you know it's been a class war for forty five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm forty five. He's like, well, it's not your fault. I'm like, oh, <laughs> right. I'm like thanks. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I um, yeah, it is because, and I'll tell you why. But what the other thing that affects it and it, um, this happens to everyone whether it's your job or you move or like I was married before and got divorced and then went through like went through that and now doing this and I'm like I'm, I feel great and so I had you know it feels like I lived through two or three lives in the last 30 years and so once when you do that it gets harder to remember like what you did when you were 16 or what you said That's fair. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I think I think that has a lot to do with it because the you know just the experiences. There's only so much you can remember. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I have, I don't remember a lot about it. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say, and I think in talking about all that, like I never want to, I feel like in, in recollecting like my teenage years, like I, I never want to sound like whiny um, because I think now in retrospect, like there's this, there's this tweet that went viral. I remember at one point and it was, I'm not going to quote it right. And I'm so mad about myself. Um, but something like, uh, being like the child of immigrants is such a privilege because your parents had to be the ones who fought for survival and like that was just the end goal and like as a child of immigrants you get to be you get to kind of pursue and search for um like self-actualization and like actually like search for your passions um and i think that that is something i i feel like i value and hold dear to my heart like all the time like i i think being a child of immigrant parents like i never ever ever forget that that um my, my whole life and everything I've been able to experience and like all the privileges I have are because my parents busted their asses um, and didn't think about like what their passions were or like or et cetera they're just thinking about you know how can I have my child have a better life and I think that is you know something I will never ever be able to repay back yeah and I'm very grateful for so passions like what mm-hmm. when when you uh, when you wound up going to Ivy League school anyway mm-hmm. um, what was your thing what was your what um what did you want to do and did you end up doing it? So I remember um, before orientation, they make you like this whole essay of like, what do you think you want to major in? Like, what do you want to do? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and I found it the other day and I immediately said, I was like, I want to double major in cognitive neuroscience and visual arts. Um, and then went into college and had just the typical thing where I then like had a full blown existential crisis. And I was like, maybe I should triple major and like, political science and also modern culture media and like did all these things and like arrived back at it eventually um actually at one point tried to shed the visual arts major component because i was like this is too much a handle i should like do something quote-unquote practical um and then got you from your parents too i bet uh a little bit actually my parents almost got me into art initially my um yeah like my entire i started like mid middle school and because I think my parents from, like, a young age were, like, you need something to, like, quote-unquote put in your application or resume. Um, so, like, started violin at age 8 and, like, started drawing at age, like, 12. But, like, ended up really falling in love with both of them. Um, and so, 
I I haven't played since going to college, actually. Well, so I played I, violin for 10 years and then was like, ah, I don't want to do extras anymore. I'm looking anymore. over here. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, putting together a, uh, a, a, you know, a string quartet because we have uh, Carl's father is, uh, is on the cello. Mm-hmm. Put you on the violin. It could be the bunker. We could play string music for all of our stuff. You need two more just, players. Who, who's the other two quartet oh, members? Look, we'll figure. Oh, you know who plays? Uh, I'll tell you who plays a uh, double bass. Drew Series. Dude, we have that's three. That's so now. tracks. That's not a yeah, quartet, makes, though. Yeah, that's not what's in a quartet. Yeah. Yeah. I, the two violin, viola, and cello. Mm-hmm. My dad was in a string quartet, so I'm. No, <laughs> no, I know that. I'm just. You asked me who else I knew played a string instrument, and now I'm no, putting I a said, bass. No, fill I said, out who the string else would quartet. be in the quartet? Yeah. That's a quartet. Nope. What's string? <laughs> Dude, you, are you like? I would so just you, like establish. You don't have the imagination that we could we could develop a new sort of a uh, you know new kind of string. Music. You can, but that's not what you call it. You yeah, call that's it something true. Else. We'd call it the, the, the neo string quartet. I would just like to establish the record because I, feel I like this how interaction. You, very, you, you defended this very strongly. I like. Well, I mean, it's, it's, in my it's blood. just true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I feel like this interaction is very exemplative of the fact of what Kirsten has told me multiple times, where she came up to me I think several months ago and was like. So I feel like you and Carl just Rob's parents. And I was like, yeah, that, that, you know what? That's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> Son, this is what a string quartet is. <laughs> I look, I know what a goddamn string quartet is. <laughs> I'm just trying to think of somebody that we can we put together and make it creativity. fun. It doesn't have to be, you, you can, you know, that's been a string quartet for hundreds of years. We need to change that. You're just, a, you're a product of, of tradition and you can't get you can't get out of it if it ain't broke. <laughs> All right, that's fair. I know I wasn't going to win this one, so I got to figure out another violin and a what a, what a viola or something. Mm-hmm. Who the fuck plays a viola? Violas are really underrated. Surprisingly, a lot of people. True, also. Usually, if you poke around like any sort of elite institution or like mm-hmm. people in government, you're going to find somebody. Oh, because it's fancy. Yeah. 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 Well, like, a lot of people I'm violin, like. I'm different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of people who like were trying to get like that resume builder. Yeah. Uh, and if they were particularly uptight about it, then they go for the viola. Huh. Yeah, because not as many people play it, so it's easier to become like more standoutish at it. Yeah. Because ah, most people cannot read the alto clef. Fucking alto clef. Oh, I forgot it's an alto clef. Yeah, yeah it's the alto clef. Yeah, that's, that's why a nobody bitch. likes it. <laughs> Folks, this is turning into a musical theory class. I like it. Uh, I just want to point out that, uh, for the record, I did know that there was not a, uh, a stand-up bass in a string quartet. I do really enjoy that Drew Sanders plays that, though. I feel like that really tracks his whole and, character. And do, do, do you like a bluegrass thing. Yeah. No, do you know what he did with it? When he played, when he played like, you know, he played for money with a, with a band. Like, not, like, a lot, but, like, play party. You know what he played? You know what kind of band he played in? Fucking mariachi. You know what? That's that dope. tracks a little bit as well. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And mariachi's like the song of like the the uh, the, the the Spanish lords uh, like like galas and stuff. I just look at how the bass plays into it. I feel like it's not traditionally in a mariachi. Yeah, I think I so. could be totally wrong. Yeah, because it's a it's it's the classical guitar, the regular guitar, maybe like a like a twelve string and a bass. Right? Isn't that what it is? I don't know. Or a banjo and a bass. Can this be the part of the podcast where we cut to mariachi music just out of the blue? Yeah. Really fucking funny. That would be funny. We're, <laughs> we're definitely going to have to do that. We're looking it up. <laughs> There's I a violin in mariachi. There's a guy with like a big guitar. Maybe like, that played the It's probably like the... called something else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe that was what it was. Yeah. Yeah, that looks like it would have the same. The resonance. same sort of. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think the uh, I don't think the mariachi is quite as uh, we'll say quite as uh, married to tradition as the uh, string quartet. Not necessarily. No, 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 no maybe not. It's just a bigger ensemble of characters. Yeah, I mean it's just as it has just as much of a tradition. This is true. So you stayed with visual arts or no? Oh yes. Yeah. So I. Um... Ended up doing it because I was actually super depressed, like like very like very seriously, um, and I ended up taking an art class and was kind of like, well, because my my thought when I dropped the major was that I'll keep doing this and like I don't need a major in it um, because I'll just keep making art and I just didn't make the time for myself to do it and I really missed the structure and like having all the materials and stuff, 
Uh, so I picked it back up again because I was like, I need this to survive. I need to create space in this. I just need to like do it. What were you painting or making it. objects? What were you, what um, were you doing? So when I picked it back up again, I had, I mainly did painting and drawing. Like that was the mediums I was comfortable in. Uh, and then I started doing uh, textile arts because I did some explorations in a class I took. Um, and I, I, I really liked making art out of just like junk and scraps because I'm really cheap. Um, and it's, it's, I really, really like the materialness of it. And I think, um, also just when you make something that's made of textiles, I think there's a lot of, um, symbolism and kind of just like significance of that, um, that I really enjoyed. And I liked sewing, like sewing was something my mom and grandma taught me, et cetera. So cool. it was personal in a good way. Yeah. My father-in-law <clears throat> does the same kind of stuff. Um, makes like, he calls, I'm like, you know, this is really good. He calls it junk art. But his whole <laughs> his whole yard, and he has a big shop and another shed. He lives uh, near Salisbury, Maryland, in the uh, near the university on the Eastern Shore. Mm. But like he he was at a flea market, and this guy was selling all of these empty propane tanks, different sizes. You know, like a ones that's on the gas grill is this size, but then they have the big ones. So he bought like fifty of them. He painted them all orange, and then he took a, like a blowtorch or like a welding torch, and he cut different jack-o'-lantern eyes in him and turned them upside down and put them on his yard. He sold like 30 of them. People are like, I'll put that in my stuff. That looks pretty cool. We had one here. Interesting. Yeah, we had one here. You might have seen it when oh, you yeah. came in. Oh, yeah, that what that was? Yeah, that was an, uh, it, was, it was a propane tank that he turned upside down, painted orange, and then just cut out. He, he, he must have made 50 of them. But, the, but he sold – a guy came up – you know, he must have sold more because we were down there and they were having like a yard sale – and a guy drove by and saw him and bought like 10 of them at one time because he has like a big yard. He's going to put them all around the yard. Around That's him. wild. Yeah. But he does. He, he actually made this table. So oh. he was at, a, again, a flea market or something. Mm -hmm. And they had just like um, demolished or torn down an old diner. And it had a couple booths in it. And there, there was one booth left. And it had these two chrome pedestals. It's heavy as hell. So he mm. had two chrome pedestals, and he he made two round tops, and made two tables out of it. And it was just sitting in his yard. I'm like, are you gonna do anything with that? He was like, you can have it if you want it. So just took it. That's it. awesome. But that's the kind of stuff he has. Like, he works. He likes to weld. He likes to practice his mm. welding. So he does a lot of metal work um, with different. Like, he made a gate and a fence out of like. 700 different rusty wrenches mm. you know and put them all together so he does stuff like that too with just like objects that's super cool this is why i can't wait to be retired like i just yeah. want time to like do all that stuff or be a like trophy wife but that's probably not gonna happen i mean you could do either one <laughs> i if could you want. i i don't think i would generally enjoy that but i, I do miss i don't think you i i <laughs> i think that the, the my guess this is just my guess we don't know each other that well but I would think that there's aspects to the trophy wife situation that would not sit well with you. It depends what kind of like I I love referring to Ali Wong's bit. Have you seen her special I, I have Baby Croba? Yeah. Where she was like, I hate feminism. We still have all the time in the world. We can do whatever the fuck we wanted. And I was like, you know, the lady makes a good point. Which like, not actually, don't get me wrong, there's also like, you know, oppression. Yeah. <laughs> um, and misogyny. Yeah. yeah. You know, lot chill stuff. Um but yeah, no, I, I, I think the, the, the free sponsorship part is something I would enjoy. And if there's no strings attached to that, I don't know what that's called. But like, if anyone out there wants to sponsor my life, that's fine with me. Uh, you guys can, uh, you guys can email uh, Highlandsbunker <laughs> at gmail dot com. Uh, well, Carl and I will put you through a thorough screening process before. Just you're... kidding! You should donate to the bunker. You should be a, a, a supporter, a member of five dollars a month. Oh, believe me, if we're, if you're not a patron before emailing, then you're, we're not even going to pass it along. You can, we, that that's you can rest assured of that. You know what I actually want to be? I mentioned this one the other day. Like, I would actually love to be like an aristocrat from like like obviously male, um, from like the 18th century, and just like have my like job be to make art and like write about shit and like be really wealthy from that like that's actually the dream person of, 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 of leisure yes exactly you know, you're like a, also be yeah. revered as this artist and genius what half of the of that century 
I don't think I know what history will have to answer this question. 18th century to 1700s. When was the, when was the, um... I wouldn't say second half, depending on the country. Well, I was going to say the same thing. I guess it depends where you're doing this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it would be one thing to, uh, like, live in, uh, like, Gilded Age, the uh, United States, but I don't think you want to be around in, like, 1918, uh, Russia would probably be. I mean, I think it's fine, but... (laughs) So, you got back into the art, but yes. you were still doing. Um, I still was studying cognitive neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so which I, which I really loved. I will say I loved both. So, did you do anything between uh, finishing school and coming here? And then, how did you sort of fall into what you're doing now? That's sort of going to be the ultimate question because. Mm-hmm. You know, you came here and you're doing sort of uh, client advocacy work mm-hmm. um, for folks who need, you know, help, I guess, in the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And is it with social services, too, or just uh, more, mostly criminal justice stuff? Um, depends how you define that. I, I, w- I would say a little bit of both. I don't think it's very neatly siloed, to be perfectly frank. Um, yeah, so I actually, mid my last semester, applied to the job I currently have. So I applied... Um, for the client advocate position at Partners for Justice, which was a new nonprofit. Um, and then basically offered an opportunity to work with clients at the Public Defender's Office one-on-one. Um, and like you said, participate in criminal justice reform. And that was something I was super interested in because at that point then in school, like I loved cognitive neuroscience and research and studying. And like, in my mind, like investigating like what dictates our sense of right and wrong, how can, how, what makes us want to like, be pro-social towards each other and all these kind of like human interactions that I was just like fascinated by. But by the end of it, I was just really tired of sitting in a lab with white walls. Like I found it kind of too ironic that I was really interested in people and how they interacted and like what we could do for social good. And I was just by myself all the time writing code. I was like, this this doesn't work for me. Um, and I also really regretted at the time that I wasn't able to do more in terms of community organizing within Providence. Um, Brown is very notoriously like on College Hill. So it's kind of just segregated and separated from the rest of Providence. And I remember even when I met with groups, just kind of with everything I was doing with at the time and my schoolwork, I I just like, I didn't have the means to go to community meetings or like be invested in the way I wished. And so I knew I wanted to do something that was kind of allowing me to invest in community, invest in a home. I think that was something I deeply wanted after moving around so frequently. And it was something I felt very passionate about. Um, so I applied for this job because it kind of ticked off a lot of boxes uh, and was initially rejected. And so I didn't have any idea what I was going to do after I graduated. Um, but I just decided to stay in Providence. I worked two jobs, um, just was trying to like pay rent and like um, file applications on the side and feel what I wanted to do. Like I love Providence. Providence is especially glorious in the summer. So I was really happy to be kind of working in these library archives and also at a coffee shop kind of on and off. Um and then was applying to things and like nothing was coming through. Um, and at some point was kind of just a, ready to like give up. Like I was applying to a lot of things that I thought would kind of fill that void for me of like, I just want to work somewhere that has like a mission I really agree with and is doing like a community work. And so I was applying to like the Southern Poverty Law Center and like the ACLU and like all these other organizations um, and just wasn't really hearing back. And so I was kind of reaching the point, I remember the end of the summer that I was like, maybe I should like quote unquote just like sell out for a bit because like, I need to make like some sort of money and just support myself and like just like just start off and get experience because obviously the, the reason why I'm getting rejected everywhere is because I don't have like any quote unquote real experience, whatever. Um, and then I got a call um, in early September where partners were just reached back out and they were like, hey, we actually have an opening in Wilmington. Do you want to take it? And I was just like, fuck yeah, this is still my dream job. Like I'll move to Wilmington in two weeks. Sure. Um and so that's how I started my current job, um, which has been just like the best roller coaster. Um, I really love what I do. I think it has been both challenging and a gift to work at something that's basically a startup. Um, because we have two separate site locations, there were there's five of us advocates in Wilmington and five of us in Oakland when we started. Um, and there was no we, we were trained through Bronx Winners in New York who already have this model of holistic defense, um, wherein um, they recognize that someone who has an open criminal case and who's usually indigent has a lot of needs that cannot just be addressed by having one criminal defense attorney. And so they network them with 
um, in-house immigration attorneys and civil rights attorneys. And they have client advocates who help like navigate them through social services and like anything to help them get them off their feet and also just survive their criminal case, essentially. We had that model, but then when we got, when we touched down in Wilmington and Oakland, respectively, there was no infrastructure in place to like do what we do. And so it was a lot of kind of figuring out what resources were available on the ground locally, um, what our clients are facing, what challenges they were, like what was available for them to take advantage of, um, and then kind of build from there how we can be helpful and service uh, the community. So how... Uh... So it, it, it just seems so interesting starting from scratch. Then my question is like starting from scratch. I sort of want to ask like, mm -hmm. what was your first moves? How did you integrate yourself into sort of the the network of folks to, to, to be able to put yourselves in a position to do that kind of thing, to give the support through social services, um, to, to figure out the different maybe attorneys people would need and all of that. Like starting like from from coming out of town, mm -hmm. like a group of people who are like, sort of fresh to the city. Because mm -hmm. that's the other thing that I find interesting is I wonder what your, um, you, you have sort of this fresh look at the at the city because you've only been here a year and you've been doing this kind of work. I'm fascinated to see like what your take on the whole thing is. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, just to start out, that you just like to start making appointments and meeting people and saying, this is what we're doing. How can we sort of get involved? It was definitely a balance of, I think, um, resource providers or certain people have been here for a while. Like, I, I think I my personal perspective was I came in like very open-minded and I was like, look, I'm very conscious of the fact that like, I was just like airdropped from like out of town. Like, I don't know, like I've not lived here. I don't have experience yet. Like was just very much like, let me, you know, listen, especially to my client's perspective and what they experience and what's going on and hear from people and what they know of existing already and just try to figure out everything from there. Um, I think what became very immediately apparent is that um, people are experts of their own truths in their own lives. And so it kind of became this learning process of balancing what people told me they thought existed already and what my clients were saying that they didn't know they had access to or like they just didn't exist that like niche for and just kind of going through everything on the ground with them. Um, so for example, like I think I like remember touching down and people were like, oh, there's like loads of housing resources, like just call centralized intake or like do this thing. And then um, I, I think the devil's just in the details. Like when you have to work with your client, who's the person who's going through everything on the ground and recognizing all these little complications, like, you know, maybe they don't have a stable cell phone to get themselves on the like shelter list every day or um, the fact that they're balancing like bringing like a single parent working and providing their child crazy like these sort of complications like there's there's all these just like hoops that the only people have to jump through to receive any sort of services um and i think when you're placed in a position like me and you're dealing with like hundreds of these people and seeing it over and over again that gives a really unique perspective where you you know you have to trust your client's truth like they're the ones going through it like i'm never going to know it like what they're going through as well as they do and my job I see as being an advocate is like amplify their voices. Um, and so I think being conscious of being an outsider and knowing that, you know, and, and I guess trying to like figure out this balancing off of like not trying to like undermine the work people are doing as resource providers while also being like, I'm hearing this from my client and I just have to champion like whatever they want and fight for them was kind of just a learning process and negotiation, just figuring out what we could do as advocates who has position within the public defender's office, like what power we had to kind of create those solutions, um, whether that was like building partnerships or just staying on the phones at DMV for like an hour with our client, like yeah. just all over the place. So, I don't know if that was a linear answer at all, if I answered anything. No, <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's, sort of, it's sort of nebulous because yeah. like you said, every case is sort of different. And I mean, we've talked about this in here before. Um, and we've talked about it in the sense of setting sort of a particular politics apart from another kind of politics that people think are the same. <clears throat> like a Bernie kind of politics, my kind of politics, is to never make programs that people need like that. That's why they have to be universal. Is if it makes it, if they're, if, if, it, if they make it extremely difficult, and they make it difficult on purpose to stigmatize the people who get it. Um, to make it difficult for people who maybe aren't as sort of sophisticated to get it. Um, so it's all, it's, you know, it's actually, I look at it and maybe I'm cynical, but I look at it as a systemic 
it's done purposely and this is a this is the kind of work that you're doing to try to get through that for people because the obstacles that you're facing and they're unique for everybody are put there on purpose and they're very insidious and that's why I'm so interested in was so it was just the work that you do is cool for that reason to me and we you know I hope people sort of appreciate that because I don't know if a lot of people do appreciate that like they just think well you know you shouldn't get anything anyway or <clears throat> yeah it should be difficult where actually it should be easy because they're our neighbor and it's a human being but yeah. of course when you're in the criminal justice system too people think ah oh, just a criminal you know and again I don't think like that either but you're at the you're sort of at the exact crossroads or one of them anyway where I'm like that's that's the kind of stuff that makes my kind of politics very vivid for me mm. because that exists because there's a role for you because you have to help these people that's like I, that's kind of where I see my demarcation line things things like that do you know what I mean mm -hmm. like the reason that programs are means tested why they're why the criminal justice system is the way it is why these things are so hard to get or even to get information on like I like it's almost like they hide the information about how you would find out about housing. You know, they don't make it easy. Um, and, you know, there's reasons for that that I think are, are nefarious. But, again, that could be because I'm a very cynical person or just because I think I figured it out. I don't know which. So what, what's your what's your feeling on uh, – well, you, do you have a comment on this? Never count out incompetence. Mm. Mm -hmm. Having mm -hmm. worked a little bit in that type of stuff, uh, yeah. that's an element. But do you think, okay. I mean, I think it's it's a bit of both, um, depending it's, on the in individual issue. I, I suppose, you know, it's, it's certainly not all one thing or the other, and, and there's a lot of different things we're talking about. We're talking about drug treatment. We're talking about DMV stuff. We're talking about how to get into a shelter. Uh, we're talking about all of this different stuff. But <clears throat> all of that, people hate, quote, bureaucracy, so they underfund it. They don't take it seriously. They think the people who get it, you know, it's like, so it's like a chicken or the egg. Like, yeah. why is it, why doesn't the administrative part work well? Is it because it's designed not to work well or the people, like, it's some, it's some Yeah, I think that's some, definitely, some big, like, if you look at, like, Sweden, their bureaucracy or, like, a German bureaucracy, it's a very, like, most of their systems work really well uh, and are very efficient. Whereas you look at ours, it's uh not not so not so much yeah and again i think that's foundational because we think it shouldn't exist we decry bureaucracy as something we're like an obstacle when really it's admi it's administering uh you know the mechanisms of the state to make everything you know to give the people the the, the avenues they need so we can all like live together um so when you take a different outlook to that stuff i think like i said whether it's funding whether it's you know, whatever it is, um, I think some of it is because we just don't care to make it good. Because as you said, in countries where they want to make it good, they make it good. So you know, I I, I don't know. It's I don't know big, how much how much of it is one way or the other. It's a big input output machine, and you got to rearrange all the pipes in the middle there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is why. Again, it goes back to the political thing. This is why. You know, keeping the pipes the way they are, but like putting some patches in or, you know, putting a larger pipe one place or another to kind of let stuff, that's not going to fly. We, we have to change, the, you know, the direction and the, and the purpose of the pipes, you know. It's like one of those type of things, you know. So I just hope people pick that up. Or just upgrade it to like electric. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have the little hamster like running yeah. on the wheel anymore I want there to be like an animated sequence of this like long metaphor that's went back and forth yeah <laughs> yeah so what's your what's your take on on Wilmington as a place I mean you've lived in you lived in a I, I mean I don't I is actually it a place to be somebody <laughs> it is it is everybody knows that <laughs> but I mean, you've you and, and not only are, are you new and you sort of have a, uh, looking at it at with sort of a fresh, fresh look, eyes, yeah. yeah. But you've lived a lot of different places. You've lived in China. I, I assume that's a large city right outside of Beijing. I mean, yeah, it's not a country oh, yeah, it's city, huge. so it's a large city uh -huh. um, outside of Chicago. But also, you know, Bowling Green, Kentucky, isn't exactly. Bowling Green, Ohio. 
Uh, excuse me, Bowling Green. No, you're good. There's, There's a Bowling Green, Kentucky. There's a Bowling Green, right? Kentucky, that's, that's yeah. But, and I think that one's more well-known. I've heard of it more for some reason. I'm always like, oh, Ohio? It's never Ohio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I, you know, I know Pittsburgh is, a, is the largest city, but it also has like a lot of suburbs and stuff, so I don't know. But yeah, So you've had high. sort of a, a lot of, and Providence being a college town, you know, mid-range. I, I wouldn't call it a college town. I think Providence is definitely its own city. And then, like, there's the brown portion there's of brown it. brown on the hill. And well, don't and Providence brown is there, too. It's a Catholic school. Was that a Catholic school, Providence? The Providence, Providence college. college? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. The Friars. Correct. So, probably. There's there's <laughs> there's a few schools in Providence. I would definitely say, like, Providence, like, I wouldn't count, I wouldn't count as a college town because there is its own community and character. Mm-hmm. And, like, there. and But, like... And then I think there are like you know like the the institutions of like Brown especially and the money they have and like negotiating between that relationship. But I, I definitely would not. I think calling Providence College Town is disrespect to Providence. Yeah. I wouldn't say that. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So uh, our little shire here, a place to be somebody. What's your take <laughs> on Wilmington? Yeah. Um, it's definitely small. Let's not get that wrong. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody is under any any, <laughs> de- any delusions delusion. that it isn't. Is it? Are they? Does anybody <laughs> think this is a booming metropolis? I don't. I, um, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think like the probably the the strongest things I immediately noticed about Wilmington, and I, I'm sure this is like you know easy truth. Anyone who do lives here, who does live here, is that like I have never lived somewhere that I've noticed wants to like consciously gentrify so badly. That is such a evident thing, especially for as someone who lives downtown. Like you just you see that everywhere, um, and it's also just segregated in a way that's like very like pocketed. Um, also something that I'm like very like starkly aware of. Um, and I, I think, I think those two things probably, I think I give it a lot of the kind of like unique tensions that it has and kind of like, like, I, I feel like living Wilmington is so evidently like many different versions of Wilmington, depending on who you are and where you're living your perception of it. Um, and it's, I think very interesting to be seen as this like quote-unquote young professional and people are like you probably work at chase and i'm like no i don't and like i also like don't really like bardea i'm sorry like <laughs> yeah but I, it's funny you said the thing about segregation too and and we've been talking about i've been making some calls and i'm trying to find um you know the right people to do a, a full sort of uh, analysis of the 68 uprising mm. um you know carl and i have talked a lot about and carl's done a lot of uh, reading about um, like suburbia and the rise of the suburbs and it's all kind of connected here and yeah I mean of the, I've never really lived anywhere else but you know I've traveled around and I'm, I'm somebody who like who likes to go out on uh, like walkabouts like my favorite thing to do would be when I travel with nurse Susan when she would go to conferences um, I would just go she would go to the conference for the day and I would just look at a map and walk somewhere you know I'd walk around Montreal for eight hours or something and so just get sort of the feel for it um so i i've you know i I just feel like this is a particularly obvious and detrimentally segregated place Mm -hmm. you know i mean i've told the story about getting into that argument with uh with prasicki at the at the at the the, uh, community meeting and him saying like, because we didn't call it the rough neighborhoods, but because I can remember that being as being a kid, people using that kind of language, and it's and it's just a dog whistle, you know, it's just like a coded message for, you know, where the black people are, and people stand for it because that's just the way it is, you know, and and that's that's one of the things I don't know how to break, like I I I, I simply you know you said about the gentrification downtown, like what that the amount of of resources that go into you know putting a new restaurant on market street uh or building a, a basketball arena uh or you know uh, luxury apartments is just incredible and the and and the lack of even care that goes into some places is just so stark it's sickening and it's it's in, I I I assume I I was I thought you would say something like that so I had I've been thinking about it, mm-hmm. but it's just uh, and again, people and I think the size has something to do with it too. Like mm-hmm. you almost can't even bring this stuff up. Like people don't even want to. They were like, oh, what Bardea? I mean, we have Bardea now. Right. People pretty like, much well, like live in their own like pockets. I think. Well, yeah. because the way it's like curated and laid out and. 
But it's, it's like, it's it's very deeply ironic, right? Because it's so tiny, especially in the downtown area. Um, and like, I'm someone who, when I moved here, like, I, I like to walk around, like, I don't have a car, which makes it very difficult in, in like, Wilmington surrounding area. Um, and so I, I think, you know, like, I walk 10 minutes, like, west of where I live, and like, it's stark contrast. Like, there's just a dividing line down, like, Orange Street, I feel like, essentially. That's about right. And, yeah. And then from, like, I can't tell which number it is because I'm not quite over it yet. But, like, yeah, I, I think, like, you can't not see it. And it's so evident when people choose not to because of where certain things are, like, just all propped up by the same, like, one or two companies and, like, all have the same look. And just, I don't know. It, it's, like, it's it's weird living here as a result. Because I, I think, like, as I got to know Wilmington better, it's, like, oh, this all feels, like, like, you can tell when the same like one or two or three places are running everything because just like you know it, it's not it's just not the same as when it's more diverse like people and small businesses and like you know like like i like know for instance like the chinese family runs mimi's now and like that just has a different feel than like walking to the same places that like also bread is pizza <laughs> like yeah. which like i don't know and, and like i i think it especially makes me sad when i will talk to people who have lived in Wilmington for much longer there was a conversation I had with someone who was at Nomad and they were like, oh my gosh, yeah, like there used to be this like barcade that was like by the riverfront and it was like family friendly by day and like a barcade during the night and then like the orange, like the deli I live by apparently used to be a two-story gay club and then like everything was like shut down because this like kind of wave of gentrification happened and you know, all these kind of, I think from what it sounded like, businesses and places run usually by black people or for the community there before were deemed like unsavory well, in do some you, way. Do you know what Bardea was before it was Bardea's? The the wing place, right? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a Kennedy's chicken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. they don't, they don't, uh, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So. I, I think that the, the reason why gentrification, and like, I, I I remember it not not being able to figure out how to define it for people. And I think what makes it really obvious to me, I think living in Wilmington, is that like, it's, it's like, who is this for? And it's for a very specific kind of like, high like at least middle high middle class or like a lot like attracting people who don't live here already and that's just like the antithesis of how you make community because you have all these people who have been living here and still live here um and you're not doing anything to make their lives better or like well you always know know one of the i shouldn't one of the 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 tells it's like Mm -hmm. it's a dead giveaway when they're talking about either putting something on market street or doing something downtown the f- when you hear people talk about, well, the parking, what are we going to do about parking? We need parking. We're doing- it's a dead giveaway that they don't care. Like, because, it, like you said, it's it's very difficult to, to, to walk in the city. Um, it's not walk or, like even, and it's funny, Carl said uh, 30 minutes. It's actually 30 minutes from here to my old office. It's almost exactly 30 minutes. And that was like the outside <laughs> amount. Um, but again, because there's these pockets you know, some neighborhoods have nice sidewalks and nice traffic lights, and it's great. And some they don't even have sidewalks. You got to like work out in the middle of the street, or if you ride your bike, you're like you're taking your life in your hands mm-hmm. because it's not it's not about making it all flow. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. opposite. Mm-hmm. It's about keeping certain people in these places and mm-hmm. certain other people in those places. So it's actually again. Maybe I'm cynical, maybe, or, but I can't imagine it just worked out that way. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's like the Przicki dream is to just have Wilmington be all the the outside places and that one strip from like the train station to Rodney Square mm-hmm. of like white gentrification mm-hmm. is where you bust all the Chase employees down from Philly and they hang out in this one little strip corner and then you just expand that until it's eating up as much of the city as possible and you mm-hmm. force everybody else out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and again, he's been very clear about forcing people out, forcing out services. We've talked about um, the, uh, the the drug treatment center on Lancaster Avenue. He's trying to force that out or break it up. Uh, the why, we just talked about the why can't get there. is not even going to get their, um, uh, their grant to offer those uh, homeless beds. Um, he doesn't, this is not, co- these aren't all coincidences happening. Yeah. You know? Um, they're trying to drive people out. Um, and frankly, you know, the, the powerful people uh, and, the, and the moneyed people here want that too. 
you know, and that's that's the that's the institutionalized obstacles that we're fighting, at least here every day. I mean, it's the same writ large, really. It's just a little microcosm. It's just it's a it's a lot more insidious when you see it up close like this. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say, and, and and I feel like anywhere you live, like there is a you know, there's there's corporations and people and like that just war going on. Everywhere, but I think again, Wilmington size and just like obviously because like this is like the corporation like capital, like you know like it's 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 so evident when you see just like the the giant skyscrapers of like all the banks and then like next to all the just neighborhoods. It's just it's it's super it's it's weird, yeah. Um, I think, you know, I think definitely first few months living here, it's like initial impression is not like this is spectacular. I think everyone should move here. Um, well, just okay. I'm shocked. On, on a, Even that got a, I almost got an audible laugh. Yeah. Out of on a super base that. level, like as someone who like just graduated from college, like as a young adult, like cool and professional, like all there is to do in downtown Wilmington is like fucking drink. Um, like these, like these, like bougie, like beer gardens and like food that's like fine. Um. Like and and like you bougie know, beer gardens and food that's just like it's it's fine. it's fine. Like like I think a lot of young can you be somebody though? <laughs> well, it depends what you mean. I just I don't know. Like I guess. Well, because what I was what I was transitioning towards is that I think Wilmington starting having a lot more value for me when I was able to meet people who are like in this room and just like people who really cared about the community and like are fighting for it in a really distinct way. Um, I think meeting like this group of people has like brought out that dimension and just community of people who are like passionate and just care about each other and like want things to be better. Um, and I, I mean that in like far less superficial ways, I think, than I just talked about. No, um, but, like, I, I generally make it a better place to live. I completely agree. Yeah. I mean, every the, the amount of, um, engagement people are having is growing mm-hmm. you see it every day you see people show up to different meetings and like our paths have crossed two or mm-hmm. three times now at different meetings and you're like this is happening people are trying yeah. to fight back a little mm-hmm. bit you know and and i hope that it, it worked like for example there is still i still think um like little italy and the, the like the union street corridor on mm-hmm. the other side of pennsylvania avenue mm-hmm. is still cool mm-hmm. um you know, there's there's uh, family places. There's small businesses still. You know, Cozy Corner Diner, Rocco's is a family place. And I got these lamps at Wilson Lighting. You guys been there 50 years. Mm. Um, yeah, so that, but but again, how long is it going to take them to get down there? Like, what, what what's the, you know, what, what's happening? I mean, they just put a big monstrosity at the end of my street here on Pennsylvania Avenue, like, what's that going to be? A shopping mall? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, two blocks from there is fucking a dope record shop. The guys mm-hmm. just, like, came here from Detroit, opened a record shop, has music there now. So it's like, there's some hope. Yeah. But um, my fear is that because of the size the the powerful are able to exert pressure because they're not spread out. They can just stay concentrated and really like jam us up. That's my, but again, I'm a very negative person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think like as not necessarily like pushback, but like I, I will say as someone who was, I think when I started coming to people who are um, just like, activists kind of like what's the right word but just like monumental figures in the activist community who, who don't want to work and you like care about it a lot like kobe like drew um i think when i kind of came to them like and again very timidly and very like aware that I was someone who was an outsider had only been here for like less than a year um and was like i'm someone who is very passionate about these issues and like care about community like what can i do to help i think the fact that i was kind of you know welcome with open arms and like given that valuable trust and like guidance um and that that has been done for so many people that i've seen um i think both through my personal journey and seeing that um 
kind of cultivation of community and trust and connection um, gives me a lot of hope, like in particular for Wilmington and Delaware, because it's like, yes, it has all these kind of like literally, literally like physical like segregations, like different kinds of people. But because of its size, I think once you get involved and like you invest in people and give them the time, like it's only a matter of time, like you said, before you kind of run to different people and like you get to like just kind of connect from like different walks of life and like hopefully like uplift people who don't usually get a voice or get are able to like kind of like you know toss their hat in the ring um so i think yes like because it's so small you have the powerful way able to like kind of like really concentrate and have those like connections and stuff like that but also i think hopefully maybe this is very idealistic like the people also have that power and increased opportunity as well and that maybe is something you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll be able to be like manifest and show and yeah, see that change. I will yeah. say that I, I, I think that that idea where like, oh, you're not from here. Why are you talking about like that's an old that's that's a um, that's a trick of the establishment. You know, that's more like an establishment thing. I think the folks that we work with all the time um, don't operate that way. I mean, I don't know, like. You know, Drew's been here a while now, but he hadn't been um, for, you know, a period of time. But, you know, the folks at, at Network Delaware, the folks on these campaigns, um, they all have different stories. And I think they're more open to people who are like, yeah, none of that really matters. Like, you have to connect with people and just want to make the place you're living nice. Like, mm. the fact that you've only been here 13 months doesn't make you, it doesn't make your opinion any less than anybody else. Cause you, because... What you're trying to do is make your community pleasant and better. So I, that's why I always, uh, you know, any any time that's another tell. Here's another tell. When you hear somebody talk about politics, or um, it happens in politics a lot, but in, in, in culture, to, in, like just in what you do, when you talk to people, like whenever anybody questions somebody's motives because you know they just moved in two years ago or something. I are I I kind of sense that 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 there's that's some kind of scam, because if somebody's very clear about what their motives are, it really doesn't matter, to me, mm-hmm. and I don't think it matters to a lot of people. Yeah, I, I guess my my awareness when I talk about that is is like, you know, not so much like for instance if we talk about like political establishment and the exclusivity of that being because it's curated for the powerful and a very specific thing. Um, I think because you know I I I genuinely think recently this is true truly been my first foray into like the activism organizing space um i i wanted to make it clear that i was very open to learn and i was i like was in no way i think especially as someone who you know i i, I have this privilege of an education um and of a higher class privilege now like i never want to seem like i'm swooping and overriding someone's narrative like i think in like i don't want to be like white savory and like i'm not white obviously but like that that, that I'm dynamic like, I'm like wait how's that like, like like that dynamic of like of like this idea of like oh like i'm really into like social justice let me just like swoop in and like you know i i, yeah. I think it was when it comes to grassroots organizing it's so you did important go to Brown after all. i did no like like genuinely like i i really wanted to like keep myself in check and be like i am here to provide whatever resources i can and like sometimes that like you know comes down to like the privilege that i have like knowing how to work like maybe like a lot of spreadsheets or like 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 random shit like that but i i wanted to make sure that I was listening to the community I was fighting for, I think. I think that is something that's, like, very easily overlooked. And I, I know, you know, obviously I'm someone who kind of comes from, with my own perspectives. Um, and, like, I, you know, have my own marginalized identities, et cetera. Um, but when it came to contributing, I think, specifically to the Wilmington and Delaware community, I was like, I need to learn what's been going on and, like, kind of keep my mind open um, and be in conversation and exchange dialogue before I, like, I don't want to come like guns blazing and like, you know, I don't know. I, I was like, I, I wanted yeah, to check no, that aspect. I, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. And mm-hmm. I guess because you came into it, like when you explain it, I understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, you're like, oh, okay, you're that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess when you approach it the way you did and it, that that was clear from the beginning. Because I, I don't know how long you had been here when we first met. I've told the story mm-hmm. before. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's gotten out before, but <laughs> you know, I wanted to go down. Carrie asked me to come down to this Middletown thing after mm-hmm. the, the the racist float at the parade, mm-hmm. and to this 
uh, the city council meeting. Mm -hmm. So Kobe said he would drive. We're going to go down and meet Carrie. You were in the car. I'm like, oh, we're going down with somebody else. Mm -hmm. And that's why Kobe's like, oh, he's starting a podcast. You were like, excuse me, what? You're doing, what are you? Car ride. Yeah. But, and you're like, but, but I don't know was... how to use Logic Pro. And I was like, I don't use Logic Pro. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't, I don't know anything. <laughs> Thank, if it wasn't for you two guys, we wouldn't even be doing this right now. <laughs> but you have to meet people where they are. We talked about that all the time, politics, but you're, you do it um, in your work. Like, you don't impute, like, need or, like, or assume what somebody's situation is. You, know? you say, okay, what's happening? Sort of what, where, where are you at? And, like, what's the best way for me to spend my time to meet your most crucial need today or you mm -hmm. know, your second most crucial tomorrow, mm -hmm. whatever. And I think most people who do her are just like that. And... I'm so glad that you're doing this because it just shows people that I'm right. <laughs> and I love to be proven right. Mm. Yeah. And it, it's it's a it's a very simple thing. And I think when I I, I think privilege again, I, I I think, you know, privilege shouldn't be as uncomfortable or a scary thing to talk about as it like kind of is as like a discomfort thing. Um because I, I think what it boils down is privilege allows you to like it is the gift of not having to deal with or see certain things. Um, and so I, I think that's, you know, I think that's why I'm always trying to check myself with the ones I have. I think, as, and I think, you know, again, I, I emphasize this again and again, because I think as, you know, I, I live a life where because of certain identities I hold, like being Asian and being someone who's like queer, I think there are multiple experiences I have where I know someone's trying to define my narrative for me. And so I think with everything I do that I think is justice oriented, I was like, I never want to do that to someone else. Um, and, you know, I think we all make mistakes and that happens sometimes. But I think, you know, I think I take my role as an advocate, as my job, like very seriously. It's like, I always want to just basically have a healthy relationship with my clients and anyone I'm fighting for and be like, this should be open communication. Like, you should be telling me like what you want and like, I should be amplifying your voice and advocating for you faithfully. Um, and if I'm, you know, and that should be a constant conversation for that reason, I guess, when it comes to this topic. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. you turn it, you actually take it and it's not that people do that to you because maybe you identify as this or that. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, I'm going to not, you know, be mad about it. I'm actually going to say, I'm going to go do this work and that's going to, uh, sort of instruct me and guide me as I do this because it's actually a it's like a not gift is the wrong word but it, it gives you incredible insight to people that you know maybe some people don't have mm -hmm. I know I didn't have it for a long time maybe I still I probably mine's probably still not as acute as yours for the reasons that you said I'm working on it but yeah I mean it's like it, it's it's something that you're able to like fall back on when you're thinking about something and be like, ah, you know, um, I ought not to do this. I ought to, you know, not to make assumptions like this because I've been in situations where that's happened to me and it mm -hmm. sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. <laughs> I do have to tell you one funny story that I thought of because I had a, <clears throat> actually he was there that night in Middletown, Jerry Harbrick. Uh, the the news journal photographer. Oh, I had yeah. him in for a conversation. We haven't done anything with it yet, but he mm. told a, a bunch of good stories. I don't know. Have you listened to it yet? Oh, yeah. It's actually pretty funny. But the part that needs to get cut out is the part that the reason we sat down to begin with is um, over the summer, there was a lot of uh, big cricket uh, on. Now, a lot of people don't follow it, but mm. I follow it. Yeah, wasn't there a World Cup as well? There was, there was. Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, so he like, asked me oh. to... So he I asked. Me, to tell you later. Like, so he he you can tell me now. Uh, so he <laughs> asked me to explain cricket to him. But I remember the day we the the the, the week we got the third mic mm -hmm. at the old bunker. Mm -hmm. After we interviewed whoever it was, I think maybe it was Carrie came in and we talked about the L, uh, the Lisa Blunt Rochester thing. But it could I don't know what it was. But it, uh, Carl wasn't there. You just ran it. And mm -hmm. then I was like, hey, you want to use the third mic? Let's just sit down and record something. We never mm -hmm. did anything with it. I guess we still have it. But I remember saying, like, I don't know well, how we got on it. I was like, well, I have these Pakistani friends of mine. And you were like, oh, how'd you meet them? I'm like, oh, I'm in a cricket club. And you you laughed out loud like a oh, natural. I, for I forgot how absurd I thought that was. You 
Yes. And it was funny because it was the most like natural out loud belly laugh. You were like, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, oh, man, that's absurd. And I, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And then you were like, okay, tell me how you got into this. But it was funny because I, I, having you come in and then thinking about that night and doing that thing with Jerry would be pretty – it just made me laugh. But, yeah, did, did I tell you the whole story of how that came about? I guess I probably did. I yeah, I was just like – I also probably laugh really loud because I think by that point we had, we had oh, both had several beers. Yeah, yeah. And but, so at the time I was like, cricket, what the fuck I is know, that? Most I absurd can, thing I've ever I, heard I, I literally – I think I came home and, and Nurse Susan was there. She was like, how'd it go? I'm like – it went fine. Oh, because we had dinner. Because we had dinner before with Carrie, I think. We, I, did, I did not. But whenever you say Nurse Susan, can I just say real fast? It's It reminds you just of like, I picture her in like one of those nurse uniforms from Pokemon because they're all like Nurse Joy and like Nurse this. I'm so glad you said that because, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, nurses used to wear that cap when they got I'm like, you know, the old fashioned thing. I'm like, do you have your cap? She's like, we burned her. Because they still give you one when you graduate nursing school. Oh, really? So I'm like, where's your cap? She's like, we all burned them. I'm like, what? She That's was, badass. I'm here she for was it. like, I don't ever want to hear you talk about it again. Because I guess it's sort of like some feminist bullshit. Like, it's like, uh, you know, you're this and you're that. It's just dumb. But I didn't know that it was dumb. I know now. Yeah, so apparently they burned them. I mean, we should go get her and she could she could well, explain what they did. Was it because they only give them to female nurses who graduate? Yeah, like that's the thing, right? Oh, like like my brother, my, my, my brother Kevin... Uh, is an is a, is a nurse. He's a, like a surgical assist nurse. He does like orthopedic surgeries mm -hmm. with the, the surgeon. And you know he didn't give him fucking one. Right, because it's like you seem female. He's a doily. <laughs> kind of. Uh -huh. And I think it was because like you know, you know when I was at least there was you know quote male nurses, but you called them male nurses. Like you don't call. I guess some people call them male teachers still for male teachers, but that's weird. Right. It's like, like you, it's just the, weird. The like, assumption is that a nurse for some reason is female, so you have to add the modifier. Yeah, weird. That's anyway, that's pr this is probably what we're talking about. We're super off topic. Now. Pro well, pro this is probably why Susan burned the cat. <laughs> Folks, you got to go to uh, you got to go to patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. You got to start paying for this. This is good fucking shit here. At Highlands Bunker on Twitter. This episode has been brought to you by, unofficially, Two Stones Pilsner. Uh, our friend Greg uh, helps them, and he helps us by giving us free beer. Uh, the last time, it was, uh, it was the Delco Lager tonight. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful Pilsner. It has a little bit of bitterness to it. It's what you want. It's crisp. It's dry. Two Stones Pilsner. Pick some up. And two stones, you know, if you want to become a patron, that would be great. Give that, us free beer. The free beer actually is good. Thank you, Craig. All right, everybody. Um, now that Lula's out, we have to do something in uh, Bolivia. And also, um, uh, Chelsea Manning is a political prisoner. We got to get her out. Lefty Pussy.